John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. I said it before, and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of the John Hughes classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host and voiceover artist in San Diego, California, and excited to be jumping back into one of our favorite 1980s films, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It absolutely is, and I think we should just jump right in. Where we left off, mm-hmm. Ferris and his friends had gone their way into the fancy restaurant Chez Louis in Chicago. Yeah. And why don't we step away from them and see what the rest of the Bueller family is doing as we go back to high school and we're just in a push-in shot down the high school hallway towards Jeannie, uh, which, by the way, John Hughes is very unhappy with how shaky this camera move is. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the stuff that bugs you as a filmmaker. Like, yeah, you never, yeah, you ne- you never get away from it. And we hear her voiceover saying, Maybe Ferris isn't such a bad guy. After all, I got a car. He got a computer. This car versus computer thing was clearly an event. Yeah, yeah. Family. It's a traumatic, really. But still, why should he get to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants? Why should everything work out for him? What makes him so goddamn special? Screw him. I think she is a great character. Oh, yeah. So well done. And, you know, to be able to do so much in so little screen time, you know, speaks volumes about Jennifer Grey's talent and her abilities in the moments. And, of course, the script as well. But, yeah, the the voiceover is so good. You know, this film is a fun throwaway 1980s film. Or maybe there's much more going on here, which I think we're discovering as we talk about it. And certainly here, how many of us have that one friend who seems to always get or family member or person we know at work that seems to always kind of get away with everything and people seem to like them. You know the truth about them. You know the truth about them. Why can't everybody else see it? Why do they get to always get away with it? And I think we're coming to that Charlie Sheen uh, later on in our discussion, and that is a real wake-you-up scene. So seeing this 
a slow pan towards her and the things that she's saying, she's self-aware. Like she, this is a great moment of self-awareness. You know, I did get the car. He got the computer. Maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe, you know, there's questions of herself, but then at the end she does say, screw it. So she's committed, recommitted yet again. But there are moments of her questioning her feelings about why she's mad at Ferris, which I think is a nice little moment to have to give a little more levels to her character. I'm so glad you said this because I'd never, I, I have a lot of thoughts about Jeannie's character and we're mm. and obviously she's going to, we're going to see some stuff from her that we're going to discuss, yeah. but it didn't occur to me until this moment that she is suffering from the disease, which today we called FOMO. Yeah. Is that, and you see where what's happening is like, yes, Ferris is getting to do some stuff, and she's not getting to do that stuff in her mind, but that is poisoning her. Right. It is making her, it it's, has nothing, all of the, all of the stuff that is making her not only not a happy person, but not a nice person, like yes. not a good person is all of her jealousy. And that's just internal, you know, she's so, she's so focused on what someone else has that she can't appreciate what she has. And there are many of us. And, you know, I will fully admit there, I'd certainly have periods or moments of that in my life as well, where I focus on what other people have instead of thinking about, okay, look at all that you've done, look at all that you've acquired or accomplished or done. So it can kind of mess with you a little bit. And so I think what she's negotiating here is something that a lot of people experience in life. Um, yep. and it's smart. It's smart to use this character in that way in this film. Yeah. And now we go back to Ferris who's in the bathroom and, and he's talking to camera, except this time he's talking into the mirror and then looking at the reflection into the camera and I just have to say, he's also talking. There is a gentleman in the bathroom. Yeah, there's an attendant. Yeah. And I have to say that of all the professions I wish would be eliminated, I don't want to take away anybody's job. It's no disrespect. I'm sure it's a difficult job. I hate the bathroom attendant. Yeah. I, I just, does anybody like that? I could never go to the bathroom like the number two with a bathroom attendant. There's no way I can do that with someone outside listening. So I feel it's a fascinating job to sit there and listen to people poop and piss all day. Like, I don't understand how you can work a job like that, but you know, you got to pay bills. Well, and does anybody go like, you know what? I could go to that bathroom over there where I'd be alone, but this one has an attendant. I would much rather go there and have someone hand me a towel. You know, does, do people like this? There might be some weird people or into that kink. I don't know. I, I don't get, okay. honestly, to me, it feels like the most status oriented I'm going to make you sit here while I take a dump and right. serve me. Like I, that's the only thing I could see that someone might get out of it is yeah. some weird sense of superiority. I, I, awesome. I will ask the cinephiles out there <laughs> Does, to, and, and no disrespect. If you oh. love this and it's a wonderful thing of luxury, explain why, like, tell me why this, we want this in our world. Cause Have I don't get a bathroom attendant. Do you know somebody who's a bathroom attendant? Yeah. Explain it to us. Yeah. And again, and, and I will still tip the guy because of course, because that's his job, you know? Um, anyway, but there's, there's this guy just sitting there. And Ferris says, I used to think that my family was the only one that had weirdness in it. That used to worry me. Which I think, by the way, that's a very key thing. All yep. families have weirdness. Yeah. Then I saw how Cameron's family functioned. His home life is really twisted. And then we cut to Alan Ruck doing all sorts of weird things with his mouth, mm-hmm. which are A, really funny, and B, would you like to know where this came from? No, please. There was a whole deleted scene where they ordered from this fancy French menu and they ordered sweetbreads, not knowing what sweetbreads were. 
And sweetbreads are the thymus and pancreas glands, which, by the way, my mom used to order. Oh, wow. Yeah, she ordered my, you know, maybe it's the old Jewish family or whatever, but like sweetbreads she ordered, tongue at delis. My mom loves tongue. We, I, that's a, that's a, a Latino delicacy. For oh, sure. sure. Oh, yeah. My, mom used to prepare tongue all the time growing up the, in, in the Bolivian way. It was so good. I love yeah. tongue. Uh, tongue, by the way, small, small side tongue is the origin of possibly the very first joke I made up, <laughs> which is, as my dad is eating a tongue sandwich at some deli, I said, when you taste it, it tastes you first, maybe six year old Steve Morris joke. <laughs> by the way, if you could see John Rogan's facial expression as he reacted to that. <laughs> Let's workshop that one. I like it. <laughs> you don't think it's there yet? <laughs> Look, I was like six. I know, I know. <laughs> if I had to live in that house, I'd probably pray for disease too. The place is like a museum. It's very beautiful and very cold, and you're not allowed to touch anything. Have you known people that grew up in a oh, place like that? Absolutely. In high in uh, growing up in middle school and high school in Virginia, yeah, I knew many. I knew many people like this who like there. There were so many rules at the house of what you could and couldn't sit on, what you could and couldn't touch, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm actually amazed that I got the car out of the garage. I caught Cameron digging the ride once or twice. It's good for him. It teaches him to deal with his fear. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's a pop psychology of a, from a high school kid, right? Yeah. So you're like, okay, well, you know, there are things that we could take a look at with you, Ferris, and your life. But, um, you know, he thinks he's helping Cameron and certainly he has the best of intentions when it comes mm -hmm. to Cameron. Ish. Um, yeah, right, fair. Um, but he's just trying to kind of, uh, you know, kind of analyze Cameron and, and figure out what's best for him, you know? And there's a certain kind of arrogance in that because Ferris Bueller has his ask is so much. Why wouldn't he think that he would have the answer to this kind of situation? So. That's just what I was going to say. And it just, it really just hit me as you were speaking really hard is that, oh, in this weird way, from a grown up perspective, this is a movie about the arrogance of youth. Yeah. Okay. You know? Ferris thinks he has it all figured out and he has figured a lot of stuff out right in a way other people haven't yeah but he has figured it all out and then no. he says plus and I must be honest here I love driving it it is so choice if you have the means I highly recommend picking one up I still use that phrase it's so choice I still use that every once in a while and I still use the phrase, if you have the means, I highly recommend picking one up. <laughs> and he tips the attendant and he heads out. And just as he out, heads out, his dad comes out of the stall. Mm -hmm. And then we cut to, and I think this is a perfect line encapsulating the character as Jeannie now in the principal's office is talking to Grace and Grace says, Well, hello, Jeannie. Who's bothering you now? <laughs> right? That's like a perfect line. Yeah. So it's not just Ferris. She's had issues with other people because she's unhappy with her life. And so she is, uh, you know, creating situations or no, and I'm not saying that she's lying. Do you know what I'm saying? Every single time, but certainly it seems the way the character has been portrayed to us that she has had issues with other people consistently enough for her to make that kind of line back. Well, her. and to be real clear, her behavior with grace and with a whole bunch of other adults. Yeah. Is terrible because yeah. she asks to see Rooney where she says you know Mr. Rooney's not here can I help you and Jeannie's response is I seriously doubt it when's he back yeah which is dismissive as hell yeah he's left the school grounds on personal business what's that supposed to mean 
Well, I suppose it means it's personal and it's none of your business, young lady. <laughs> nice attitude. Ironically. I mean, she's horrible. Yeah. Well, and this is, again, this is how well, Fomo yeah. has poisoned her, you know? Yeah, she's mad. She's a, she's a frustrated young teen, you know? So emotions are going to be all over the place. Snapping is going to be all over the place. So, yeah. Um, but <laughs> what you see there in that back and forth is, is yeah, it was rough. But, like, um, I love that Edie McClurg is constantly the person who is, like, dealing with people's worst behaviors. Uh, if you remember the scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, oh, yeah. so her way to kind of deal with both of these situations is funny. Because we – and this is the window, right? Like we Like I was saying earlier – there's more going on to her. And for the, I'd love the cinephile fans to chime in on this too. Cause I have a feeling that this is a whole act that she puts on to keep the job because in that one yeah, moment, yeah, grace, totally right, grace. Yes. Grace. Sorry. Grace puts on this act of being like kind of out of it and smelling the glue and all these things. Like for her, it's a steady job. She, if she plays like the kind of dumb, a little bit dumb or a little bit slow or sort of for lack of a better term, the principal feel and the male principal feels like he is the guy in charge, you know, and she'll throw an occasional compliment as well, like the dirty hairy thing. And that strokes the male ego because most women know how fragile the male ego is. And so very easy for her to play that. But in this moment, when she says to her, I suppose it's personal and it's none of your business, young lady, there is a difference in tone and shift of a woman who is very well aware of how to respond to something like this. So to me, that's where I see her like a little glimpse of the real grace behind the act that she's been putting on as a secretary or assistant here at the school. I totally agree. I totally agree. Isn't Mrs. Hagel expecting you in consumer ed class? Probably. And I love that Grace, after Jeannie's gone, says, What a little asshole. <laughs> see? I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. She is, she's a very well aware of what she's doing. And then we're back at the restaurant outside, and there we see Ferris's dad talking business. And I have to tell you about something I read that I, have, I believe I've proven not to be true, which is someone said, well, Abe Froman is at the restaurant. He had lunch with dad, and that's who dad is talking to in front of the restaurant. Okay. Um, and because dad says something that sounds like Abe when he's talking to him. Dave, you got to consider raising your advertising budget. It is, in fact, Dave. So that is not Abe Proman he's talking about. I've, I've blasted that theory. And I love the camera tilts up to the four of them standing there staring stunned. And Ferris says, 4,000 restaurants in the downtown area. I picked the one my father goes to. We're pinched for sure. No way, Cameron. When the meat get pinched, the bolts survive. And the shot of them all putting on their glasses and the snaps. And it's really funny. It is. And also that they steal dad's cab. Yeah. Rooney is out looking for Ferris. And I love what Rooney thinks a high school kid like Ferris would do on his day off. Right. Compared to what Ferris is actually doing. Yeah. Because Rooney goes to the local pizza place, <laughs> you know, and scans the room and sees someone at a video game that has a jacket that's similar to Ferris. Yeah. <laughs> Walks up. It was um, Jeffrey Jones's idea to speak French, by the way. Oh, really? Jean sont fait. I say this <laughs> as well. I also quote this all the time. Your ass is mine. And then slowly, the pseudo Ferris turns around and we see it's a young woman. Everything about her look to him is great. Um, and she, you know, pulls up her straw and kind of spits in his face. You're right. She emasculates him non-verbally. Yeah. Right. As soon as she realizes 
that he realizes he's made a mistake. She takes her sweet ass time blowing that into his face and he takes it. Yep. It's, it's, well, and, and, yeah, I mean, walking up to a strange woman and saying your ass is mine. Right, right. That's well, some not women, a, some, especially young teenagers would run away or get the fuck out of yeah. there. But she is self-possessed enough to be able to be like, oh, I've dealt with this bullshit. Before. We cut to a baseball game on TV and that TV is in the, the pizza place that Jeffrey Jones walks up to, but he hasn't looked at the screen. So he doesn't see the moment where Ferris Bueller catches a fly ball. Yeah. And like, this is perfect. I want to look like a masculine kind of man dialogue and fail. What's the score? Nothing, nothing. Who's winning? <laughs> the Bears. The Bears. <laughs> <laughs> Which, to be to be real clear for maybe some of our uh, foreign listeners, the Bears, not a baseball team. <laughs> or non-sports inclined listeners. The yeah. Bears are a football team. The yeah. Cubs are playing. That's the baseball team. Yeah. Uh, and we're at the game. And I just, and again, I grew up saying, saying, hey, batter, batter, batter. Yeah. I didn't grow up saying Kennedy, 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 Kennedy. So we got all of which is stuff that Alan Ruck did when he was a kid. Oh, that's wow. from him. Yeah. And we cut to the outside of Wrigley Field and see that Fa save Ferris is up on the, the sign. Rooney pulls up in front of the Bueller house, parks on an empty street right in front of a fire hydrant, rings the doorbell. Uh, and then we hear, after we see some electronic thing happen, we hear Ferris's voice answering the phone because he has a taped uh, message. Yeah. Smart move. Yeah. Well, why does he park in front of a fire hydrant? Like, that's, these are the things. Again, it's I go back to this all being just a weird kind of fever dream of a movie. Why does he park in front of That's the greatest way to grab attention to yourself is to park in front of a fire hydrant. You might get a ticket. And then when he rolls up in there and has the back and forth with the electronic response machine i think it's hilarious i will give you an explanation for why he i will give you two explanations <laughs> okay explanation number one is he is so obsessed with ferris bueller that he has stopped thinking clearly fair enough explanation number two is john hughes had multiple gags <laughs> that he wanted to do and it was necessary that he do it that way did he i guess he earned it by this point you're like oh you know what i'll like i'll let that slide because the rest of the movie's been so good yeah well and and we're going to get increasingly ridiculous yes true you know and it because it's like i mean you've gone to a baseball game how long does it take to get into the baseball game to get to the seats to sit in the game yeah it takes a while and then immediately catch a foul ball and then somehow be at a museum and somehow be at a parade. And, yeah. so, you know, after your fancy meal at a French restaurant, well, it's a lot, you know, it takes no time at all when you're dreaming. But when it's real life, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. And then Rooney kind of goes into the backyard and we watch through the window and all of this. It's just great physical comedy of him falling, him stepping in the mud, his foot gets stuck. He, you know, he loses his shoe. He bends over his pants split, like all that stuff is. I, Jeffrey Jones, I mean, I feel so, uh, it's so upsetting what happened to him, but yeah. he's a really good physical comedian. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. And then as he's at his low point, <laughs> we get to what I'll say is an emotional high point of the film with the great Star Wars fanfare from John Williams and the Ferrari flying over our heads as these two guys go off on their journey. <laughs> and now Rooney's discovered there's a doggy door. And so you can see him thinking about going through that doggy door to get in the house. The thing he doesn't think about is that big doggy doors usually correspond to big dogs. Yeah. And there is a big Rottweiler who spots him as he puts his head through that doggy door. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to go well for Rooney. 
We cut to one of my favorite montages in the whole film, which is they run up to the Art Institute of Chicago, which is one of, again, this is the love letter to Chicago. John Hughes loved the Art Institute. He regularly went there during his lunches at works. And one of the things of this was just his chance to show some of his favorite paintings. Yeah. And I love, like, there's the school class with all the kids holding hands. And then as they go through, we see our three guys holding hands and then more kids. And we see Picasso and Kandinsky and a Jackson Pollock and a Batiste. And there's the Rodin statue. And then the three of them standing cross-armed in front of this. It's all great. Yeah. The Sunday in the park. Yeah. Well, that moment. So it's Sunday. It's, it's, you know, a Sunday afternoon on the Island of La Grande Chate by uh, Surratt, which is the basis for the musical Sunday in the park with George. Yeah. And as Ferris and Sloan are kissing in front of a Chagall stained glass, Cameron is staying, staring at this pointillistic painting, getting sucked further and further into this little girl's face. Mm. I have what John Hughes thought this moment meant, okay. but I wanted to first ask you, what does this mean to you? What are you feeling when you see him look at this painting? Well, I think, first of all, this is when I mentioned in part one, this is where I discovered the Smiths, this song. Mm. I immediately fell in love with this song the first time I watched this movie. I'd never heard of the Smiths at this time, even though a lot of my alternate music-loving friends had. Um, and this song, for whatever, it, there's such a melancholy sadness to this song. Mm. And then when you listen to the lyrics, it's perfect the, w- the way it's mirroring what's going on with Cameron. You know, and Cameron's staring at this young girl. She is dancing around and happy, and she's separated from her parents, but she's joyful. And I think what Cameron is seeing is the life, the childhood he didn't have, the, mm. this idea of freedom, this idea of joy, this idea of, uh, you know, being able to dance in the grass and stuff like that. He never had that because his father was so strict, so demanding, so OCD about everything. So it turned him into, you know, this thing that he absolutely hates in terms of his uh, uh, childhood and his family. So to me, that's what I just see a kid, a guy longing for a childhood he never had. Uh, and the painting really brings that out because it's a gorgeous painting. It oh, it's really amazing! Gorgeous painting. You can have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen it in person? Yeah, yeah. I, when I went to Chicago years ago, years ago for uh, when I was on that Fame show as an assistant production manager, mm. and I purposely because of this movie, I went to the art museum and walked around. Same, Karen and I. We drove around the country in '95, mm-hmm. and same thing. We went because of this movie. I mean, and because we had actually been listening to the album for Sunday in the Park with George throughout that ah, okay. whole drive. So then it had double meaning. So what I love, I, I think your explanation is great, and what I love about this scene is this is a totally—it's not an abstract scene, but no. it's 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 gives us the ability to fill it up with whatever meaning we give it. You know what I mean? It, it it's a it's very different. I mean, how many teen fun comedies have a sequence like this. Exactly. And I think that's why it's an important scene because, and what's important about John, the Joan Hughes films, he puts a lot of insane situations and comedically out there moments in his scenes, in his films rather. But there's always that one scene that grounds you in reality about the emotion that's going on for these characters. It's Candy and Martin in the hotel room or Candy and Martin Mm -hmm. later in the, in the train station. And this is the moment here uh, and we're going to get another moment when that when they're having the conversation with Cameron in front of the car that um, near the end of the movie. So this is what John Hughes said that he thinks this moment means mm. is he said that he thinks that Cameron, as he looks closer at the girl, is thinking 
that the closer he looks at this girl, the less there is. Because as you move closer to a pointillistic painting, the de- you know the actual image disappears. And you just look at the points, and he worries that the more people get to know him, the less they will find. Hey, hey, that's great. I love that. Yeah, I thought it's and yeah, again, that's good. I never had that thought. No, no, neither have I. Yeah, I but but I was like, oh wow, that's that's kind of amazing. And the other thing he said about this moment that I think is interesting is that Hugh says that pointillism, this style of painting, yeah, is like making a movie because when you make a movie, you make all these little pieces, yeah. but you don't have any idea what all those pieces are going to be until you step back from it. Like with a point, if you if you start at this painting and you start six inches away from it, it's nothing. Yeah. You can't see what it is until you take ten steps back. Here's the other thing about this sequence. This, the studio hated this sequence. Audiences hated this sequence. In every single test screening, when they would have, because I'm sure you've done these things, and they have a little card, and it says, what was your least favorite moment of, in the movie? <clears throat> Everyone said the least favorite moment was this sequence in the museum. Hmm. And this is what they figured out. Two things. The first is it had different music. It had classical guitar rather than the Smith song that you love so much that I love too. But the more important thing is this sequence came after the parade in the original cut. And what they went was, oh, no, the parade is the emotional, joyful climax of the movie is that if you put that if you put this scene after it, this scene looks kind of slow and sad and weird. You put it before it and they just moved it, changed the song, and suddenly everybody loves the scene. Of course. Yeah. It's like a DJ. You always follow the slow, sad song with the upbeat song. You always do that so that people aren't leaving you with, a, a, you know, feel, wallowing too much in that feeling. They will, You want to shake them out of it as quickly as possible. Yep. So speaking of a parade, let's go to a parade. <laughs> so by the way, so this is... Uh, you know, I think Michigan Avenue, heart of Chicago, John Hughes worked right near here in his advertising job because he was oh, wow. in, did advertising before he worked for the National Lampoon, which led him to write Mr. Mom and Vacation and all that stuff. Um, so he used to go, you know, basically he hated his job. So anytime there was a parade, he was outside watching the parade. This is a real uh, German-American parade. It was called it's like the Von Steuben Day Parade. Okay. And this is how they did it, is they shot it over two days. Day one was the Saturday when the parade actually happened. Yeah. The following Saturday, they'd put a thing out on the radio asking anybody who could to come back to sort of recreate the parade. So one is they're sort of shooting the real parade, and the other is all staged. Right. And they thought they'd get, a you know, 1,000 people maybe, and they got like 10,000 people came out on the second Saturday. Yeah. Um, we're in a cab heading towards the parade. It's getting late, buddy. We better go get the car back home. What do you, we have a few hours. We have until six. I'm sorry. I mean, I know you don't care, but it does mean my ass. You think I don't care? I know you don't care. I think that they are both right. I mm. think on some levels, Ferris does not care, and on some levels, he really does, of course. Yeah. Cameron, what have you seen today? Nothing good. <laughs> nothing, no, nothing. What do you mean, nothing good? We've seen everything good. We've seen the whole city. Uh-oh. We went to a museum. We saw priceless works of art. We ate. We ate pancreas, which is the cut scene that we don't. Oh have. yeah, right. And then Cameron starts making a weird face, and it ends up that Dad is in the next car. <laughs> it's a great all done in camera. Camera is on our gang. It pans over to Dad, who looks, sees something, pans back, 
And now it's just Sloane sitting there with her sunglasses on. And she hits on him. Totally. And he receives it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, and, you know, wouldn't you? I mean. Yes, I suppose. Well, no, I don't. Well, I don't know what I would do, to be honest with you. I would have a moment. I'm not saying I would do anything, but if a beautiful woman in the next car smiles at me and blows me a little kiss, I would go like, huh, what? Uh, oh, oh, okay. You, you know, I couldn't tell if she was a teenager though. I think that's the thing at the, uh, when I'm looking at, it. I'm like, you can't tell that's a teenager. I think, I think age <laughs> can be ambiguous. Bubble, by the way, <laughs> look, need I bring up raging bull? You know, <laughs> I think that sometimes it can be difficult to tell about of someone wearing sunglasses that you see only for a moment exactly how old they are. All right. Well, and John Hughes thought she was in her mid twenties, and that's why he he when he found right. out she actually had just graduated high school, he was less likely to cast her. Right. Anyway, it's a it's a funny bit. It is. Yeah. And by the way, on his newspaper that he's reading, uh, we see community rallies around sick youth. <laughs> And then we cut back to the parade. It's Cameron and Sloan walking through the crowd. No Ferris to be seen. And then we hear this voice. Ladies and gentlemen, you're such a wonderful crowd. We'd like to play a little tune for you. It's one of my personal favorites. And I'd like to dedicate it to a young man who doesn't think he's seen anything good today. Cameron Fry, this one's for you. And there is Ferris on the float. The guy who was trying to avoid getting seen by his dad is now one of the most, you know, obvious places ever. So hilarious. Do movies go to ridiculous places like this anymore? Like, do we do this? I mean, we don't make a lot of comedies, so. I don't know if good movies go to ridiculous places like this anymore. I'm sure there are a lot of terrible comedies that have come out in the last few years that go to ridiculous places like this. I mean, even I'm thinking, like, comedies that are on TV, Mm. like Parks and Recreation went to places like this you know 30 rock went to places like this yeah but they well 30 rock did for sure because yeah. that was a fantastical show from the beginning yeah. with parks and rec there's much more stability in that there's yeah. much more groundedness to parks and rec that's real by the way i mean as i've said before on the show you know one of my best friends or my best friend is a, is a city manager and some of the things he tells me that he experiences in council meetings or whatever is like it mirrors a lot of a Parks and Rec, what you see happen in Parks and Rec. Some of the insane stuff yeah. that happens in Parks would not be as insane as you think in real life. Well, I mean, my experience, at, you know, watching insane movies about Hollywood was when I came here, I was like, oh, that's normal. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, that, is, that isn't even Little that great. Sharks is normal. A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so and the song that he's about to lip sync is Donka Shane from Wayne Newton. Yeah. So, so you know how I said that there's so much in this that's a love story, you know, a love letter to all the things that yeah. John Hughes treasures, like the Beatles, like the art museum. Not so with Don Shane. <laughs> Don Shane, it sounds like when he was growing up, was that overplayed song on the radio that he couldn't stand and hated and wanted to get away from. Wow. Okay. And yet it's so joyful when yeah. Matthew Broderick sings it. Yeah. And I love, you know, the judges are trying to figure out what's going on because obviously this wasn't in the script. And Cameron and Sloan run up to the float and the cops pull them away. Like all the details. And apparently 
the the women on the float that are in the outfits, yeah. which strangely enough match well with you know Ferris's vest and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they this is what John Hughes said was they kind of thought this was all serious, like they didn't quite understand oh, what wow. this was that was going on. It was a hell of a choreographed dance sequence, though. They were fantastic. Well, particularly when we get into Twist and Shout. So I'm saying, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, and uh, then we cut to, I love this this scene with Cameron and Sloan just having a private conversation. Yeah, it's really interesting how this these next few scenes between them play out. And I wonder what Hughes is trying to say with these scenes with her and Cameron. Um, as I was re-watching it this time, because we get this scene here, then we get the scene later by the pool when he's coming around. Yeah. And then by the car when she's like asking if he's seen her change out mm-hmm. of the clothes. So I just, I just wonder about it all. And she's the one caring for him while Ferris is talking to us in that scene we're going to get to. So yep. just have a lot of questions about what's going on here in this sequence, in this situation, in these situations. Did you have it like your gang of friends in high school? Yeah, I had a gang of friends in high school. Sure. Yeah. I, I, and I was... I had a girlfriend at 17. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but in general, like other people had girlfriends more than me. Right. So I was frequently the friend hanging out with the girl when her boyfriend was somewhere else, you know? Friend zone guy. Okay. Fair enough. Well, dude, you know my history. Of course I, I was the friend zone. Fair enough. Guy. Yeah, fair enough. I think it's been well documented on the Cinephile side as friend zone guy. <laughs> um <clears throat> And so this, uh, there's something that felt feels very real about this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Cameron can be honest with Ferris. And I don't think Sloan can be honest with Ferris in the no. way they're honest with each other. You yeah, know? I agree with that. hundred percent. You know, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. There's nothing he can't handle. I can't handle anything. I think it's a really honest line. Yeah, and it's an honest line as a teenager, right? Because you don't yeah. know what the future holds for Ferris. You don't know what the future holds for you. But in that, in that situation, yeah. in that moment, you think this person's going to be super successful and I'm not. And I'll tell you this right now from my own personal experience. A lot of the people I went to high school with that I thought was for, sh- were for sure going to succeed and become these uh, world dominators and owners of the world ended up not becoming that at all. And when I saw them at the high school reunion uh, uh, years ago, I was just like, wow, I was surprised at how many of them did not conquer the world or accomplish the things they were going to accomplish. But when you're in high school, your world is so small. This is how you think. So I love that the film kind of addresses that in that moment. And the person you think is not going to be successful is the person that kind of fights and claws and scratches or finds things that open up for them and they bloom later in life to be able to embrace the things that they have. So it's just a fascinating moment to see an interaction. I think a lot of us can feel a connection to, because not many of us get to be the high school quarterback or the no. cheerleader and you know whatever the head nerd at D that is nowadays you know not all of us get to be the popular kids so we watch from that prism of cameron's prism when i was in film school there was a guy uh you know and all of us are making our films and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not and some people are better than others but there was one guy sure. clearly head and shoulders above all of us yeah. the guy was a genius every movie he brought in i was like oh my god i can't <laughs> believe what this and that guy yeah. didn't succeed i mean i'm not you know he had a rough rough time yeah and he's brilliant there was no question that this guy was brilliant like you can't predict where things are gonna go yeah because sometimes because you're in a world of yes in that small town in high school it doesn't mean once you go to the big city that world of yes is going to be there for you as well it doesn't always transfer i don't know what i'm gonna do college yeah but to do what what are you interested in and i Love, I think there's something so true about this moment mm. because Cameron pauses, 
And then he has, with the biggest smile on his face, says, Nothing. And she has the biggest smile on her face and laughs and says, Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a camaraderie, a kinship between them. Because I'm sure she's been pressured by her parents. Like, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do? You can't, you got to pick something to study. You've got to focus. Time is running out. There's always that kind of thing where parents are transferring their fears and their concerns and their worries from their own lives onto their children uh, to try to motivate them to um, be more, I don't know, be more driven to accomplish things. Yeah. Well, and I think there's this, and, and we're seeing this transition continue was there was a time where mm-hmm. kids didn't have a choice, you know? Right. Father was a farmer. You're going to be a farmer. Yeah. You're going to work in the factory. Hopefully you could get a job at the factory or at the auto mechanic. And that was it, you know? Yeah. And then all those generations worked super, super hard to give their kids the opportunity to have, Hey, you get, to, I didn't get to choose. Yeah. You get to choose. Yeah. Right. So why aren't you choosing? Like <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? You know? Exactly. Yeah. And Ferris goes into twist and shout. Yeah. When they shot this, I can't believe they did this. They did not have the rights to the Beatles song. What? They didn't have the rights yet. Wow. It ended up costing them $100,000. Well, that's not too bad. Uh, it's, it's a lot for at that time, well, but it isn't, point. but, yeah, but, yeah. but it, it isn't too bad. I mean, today, I, I don't even know if you, how you would even get it. It'd be a million dollars easy. Yeah, talk to Paul. Uh, and then, and then, well, apparently Paul was not pleased what? when he saw the movie. Because they added, because they have the marching bands right. at the parade, and they added the marching bands to the mix of Twist and Shout. And Paul said, look, if we had wanted horns on it, we'd have put horns on oh, it. Oh, for God's sakes, Paul. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Much of this obviously is choreographed. Much of this, when you see people like the the workers and the guy up on the, the scaffold yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah. That's just people in Chicago who were dancing because they were playing the music. And oh, that's great. And it's that- shot that way, too. So it yeah. feels very authentic. That's great. But then there's also, uh, by the way, uh, the choreography is by Kenny Ortega, who later was the oh, yeah. Dirty Dancing yes. choreographer, great choreographer. The I, What do you think about the moment when the African-American group come in and do a very, very choreographed bit of dancing on the stage? I love it. I think it's fantastic. And I think this is the thing about the film you know, this is the 1980s. This is very much a white kid's story, a white yeah. family story. And then, you know, the other uh, kids there, Mia, Sarah, and uh, Cameron, uh, kind of white. I don't know. I don't know Mia, Sarah. I don't know what her uh, heritage is, so I don't right. want to misspeak there. But it seems to radiate white. So when we get some color in the film, I'm always happy to see it. And I think the way they come in and do the dance sequence, everything, it's so awesome. And I love it. You know, and I love the fact that later on when we get to the police station, the detective is, a, is an Asian uh, actor. And yeah. I love that, too. So the moments that they could find diversity back in the 1980s, and I know Do the Right Thing is only a few years away after this one. I kind of liked it the way they weave it into here because it is John Hughes's experience in middle America that right. he's talking about. And there probably weren't a lot of people of color in middle America back in the 1980s. So. I actually like that they weave that in and it's a, it's a great sequence. And, and then, and again, this is this thing that John Hughes does is it goes to ridiculous level because you have the giant flips in the background and stuff, you know, it's such, it's such a joyful sequence, man. It's it really amazing. is. And all the ladies dancing around him, there's fantastic moves and whatever. And there's a little bit of sexiness to it because they're, they're flipping up their skirts and stuff. And, but everybody dancing around the black uh, crew coming in and doing their thing. Everybody dancing, as you said, like just kind of impromptu there to the music all of it and the way it's shot you know and listen 
John Hughes deserves so much credit for the shooting of this movie. You know, when you we know Steve, I know you're writing that book about direction, so I can only speak on it from certain uh, points of views. But like the way he uses the camera in this movie to really kind of get you into the feeling of every one of the scenes, the way he uses the breaking of the fourth wall, the framing that is going on in the breaking of the fourth wall, and then the framing here when you're close to Ferris, it feels like you're in the crowd in the. Um, watching this happen, right? And then when you're watching everybody dance, you could totally see yourself looking to the left and right and seeing everybody's dancing around. It's the way the the whole black group comes in. It's almost like they're on rollers sliding yeah. in, and then they're then you see they're actually Coming. using their feet. And so all of that stuff is so well framed. And then when it goes to close up to show all these different people, m- white people mixed in with people of color celebrating bringing together you know singing along together is there's something really smart and powerful happening here and there's such joy of what can be um when we're all together enjoying something and so i think there's so much happening here in such a fun little sequence um than you might think when you're watching it the first time joy is the right word yeah it is such well and this is again why it makes sense that if you would put the museum sequence after this oh yeah what a letdown yeah, yeah, true, true. Um, and then it ends with Ferris turning his back to the women he's dancing with and falling backwards in a trust exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Totally being 100% certain they are going to catch him. Yeah, yeah. So, and the thing is, I was like, that is a fucking metaphor for Ferris Bueller's life. Yeah. He, is, that's a great point, Steve. Yes. I'm going to do something completely ridiculous and the world will catch me. And most likely it'll be beautiful women catching me. Yep. Yes. Yep. In his mind, yes, absolutely. And, well, and this is where it's like, may, <laughs> I don't know what happens to Ferris, but at some point he's going to fall. Oh, yeah, you know? sure, 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 sure. Not every, He's not going to ca- get caught every time. Yeah. Rooney, looking much the worse for wear, is receiving some flowers at the, um, at the Bueller house, the card of which says, all our best for a speedy recovery from the faculty and staff. So his own school. <laughs> Did Grace send these flowers? I... Grace might have sent these flowers. Very, very possible that Grace sent these flowers. Yes. And, and just all the little bits. The delivery guy does the, you know, shaving a haircut on his horn. And Rooney does two flip ups, you know, flip offs. And I didn't know. Do you know who that delivery guy is? Uh, Louis Anderson. Yeah, of course. I never knew that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 And then Rooney spots the dog and says, Look what Uncle Ed has for you, little fucker. <laughs> many things happen at once one we see genie in her fiero um which by the way that is a perfect choice of car yeah the fiero in the 80s was so specifically something you knew who had the fiero you absolutely knew in high school who had the fieros in the 80s yeah you're 100 right who had the fiero the, for for me it was either it was the um it was the rocker girls had yeah. the fiero and the the dudes who couldn't afford or didn't get the muscle cars, they got the Fieros. They stepped out, and they're a little bit like um, what do you call it? a little bit uh, cleaned up, so to speak. So I thought it was always kind of interesting to see the people who had the Fieros. Yeah, it's it's because um, I'm not rich enough to buy a. Uh, I'm not rich enough to get a more expensive car. Exactly, but this exactly. is a this is a kind of a cool little small car. It's a cool. It's a it's sport ish. Yeah, sport ish. Yes. Yeah. Because because there were kids, I mean, there were kids growing up in Marin County, there were kids that had the yes. BMW, mm-hmm. you know, and so this was the kid that wanted the BMW, mm-hmm. you know, or the muscle car, as you say, but yeah. they got, hey, the Fiero's cool, man. Right, right. 
Um, Occasional mullet would come out of the Fiero for sure. Oh, we also see that now Save Ferris is on the water tower. <laughs> like it's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, we cut back and we see the dog unconscious with the broken flower pot around him. So Rooney assaulted the dog, correct? Yeah. Yes. Rooney did. Yes. Jeannie runs inside, goes straight up to Ferris's room, sees the mannequin, and says, I know it! <laughs> and we cut to her again, speaking to an adult in an extremely disrespectful way. Well, do you know where she is? Do you know when she'll be back? Do you know anything? And then Rooney has now broken into the house. Yes. And she hears him, and we have a great sequence of him thinking that he hears Ferris, and Jeannie thinking that she hears Ferris, and then both advancing on each other. Ferris. Bueller. Until they both have the jump around the corner with the ha, gotcha. <laughs> and she sees it's a man, and we have those quick three kicks to his face. That's so great. <laughs> Which is post, by the way. She only kicked him once. Oh. Wow. Yeah. That's like, man, editing. You can do magical things. Um, she runs upstairs. His car is now getting ticketed. It might be the second or third time it's gotten ticketed. Yeah. And now we're back with our gang and they're at the garage. And what we see as they're walking in and talking is the car, the Ferrari pulls in behind them, goes around and comes back out and delivers it to them right then. That was so quick. Cameron is happy. Everyone is happy. Yeah. Jeannie is on the phone with the police. This is where Jeannie is right. Nobody yeah. is listening to her. Yes. Because a dude really did break into her house. Yeah. That's true. Look, this, this is not a phony phone call. There is an intruder, male, Caucasian, possibly armed, certainly weird, in my kitchen. Possibly armed, certainly weird is a perfect John Hughes line. <laughs> Look, it's real nice that you hope my brother's feeling better, but I'm in danger, okay? I am very cute, I am very alone, and I'm very protective of my body. I do not want it violated or killed, all right? So they are not taking her seriously. No. And she has a reason to be mad, but then... Speaking of English! <laughs> not so cool. Yeah, not so cool. Um, but she has probably called the police tomorrow more than once, I have a feeling. Oh, that's possible, too. Yeah, just like with the, um, uh, Grace. I'm sure they're like, okay, what's it this time, you know? Well, and she probably didn't start with a very good attitude right mm -hmm. from the beginning, you know? This is another lesson in life, kids. No matter what's going on with your world, no matter how pissed you are off people, if you're going to approach people with attitude you're not going to get the best response you're not this is this is the lesson i really learned when i used to work in a coffee store i was the assistant manager of not coffee but copies copies right yeah and nobody walks into a copy store with lots of time they're yes. always behind yeah so i had so many people who were stressed out because they need their you know six thousand page whatever thing <laughs> copied yeah. Yeah. in the next 10 minutes and it wasn't physically possible and they're yelling at me and it's like look I can't make the machine go faster. I got yelled at so often. Really? Oh, all the time. All the time. Yelling at you, really? I mean, not, I'm exaggerating, not yelling, but definitely angry, yeah. angry, frustrated customer taking it out on the 22-year-old assistant manager at the coffee store. It's not my fault it took you this long to write your script. It's not my fault that it took you this long to do whatever it is. You're coming in. You need my help. The last thing you need to be doing is shooting your fucking mouth off. Just yeah. be thankful that we're getting it done as quickly as we can. Yep. <laughs> Rudy's car is getting towed, and Jeannie comes on the intercom and says, Whoever's in the house is still in the house. I'd like you to know that I've just called the police. So if you have any brains whatsoever, you'll get your ass out of my house real quick. 
I'd also like to add that I have my father's gun and a scorching case of herpes. And he walks out dropping his wallet. Yep. Of course. And, ch- and then chases after the, the tow truck towing his car. Frustration that he has oh. when he starts. When he First of all, he puts the keys in the car as it's driving, mm-hmm. as if that's somehow going to stop the car from moving. And then it takes off with his keys and the the just the short bursts of words that come out of his mouth and before he starts running after it is great. I mean, and to be clear, we start off, Rooney is correct. Yeah, Rooney's correct in terms of his analysis of the situation. Yeah. His actions, I don't think, are correct once he leaves the school. No, but, but like he is correct in that Bueller is absolutely skipping out on his ninth day and should be punished for it. It goes to like... He has a, this is what's right. Ferris Bueller is doing something that's wrong. He should not get away with that. And therefore, all of the wrong things that I am now going to do are justified. Yes. Because this kid has skipped school. Yes. By the way, there was a whole other plot line about Charlie Sheen's family because Charlie Sheen's family owns that tow truck. There was like multiple things where they came and I don't know what they all were, but multiple things that came up that tracked the family of Charlie Sheen and their involvement in this somehow. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I love Cameron is kind of glowing. He's like, everything's going okay. And at the moment that Cameron is happy as Ferris finally looks down at the odometer. (laughs) How many miles did you say this thing had on it when we left? 126 and halfway between three and four tenths. Why? How many miles are on it now? <laughs> and it's over 300. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get the shot of Cameron that comes out of Cameron's mouth as he screams. Apparently, that took them a long time to really? figure out how to shoot that. Yeah. Check, which I get. I thought it was great. It's so well done. Yeah. And he's completely stunned. Um, the doorbell rings. And we hear, of course, the the Ferris recording. God bless the police. Runs downstairs, opens the door, and there is sexy nurse at the door who says, I heard that you were feeling ill, headache, fever, and a chill. I came to help restore your pluck, because I'm the nurse who likes to... Love that joke. John Hughes has world-class joke writing ability in addition to all this other stuff that he does well. Yeah. We're like by the side of the lake and Cameron is comatose with Sloan and Ferris says, this may very well be for real. I think Cameron might have blown a microchip or two. This is, by the way, right at the beginning of the shoot. Yeah. And yeah. And Matthew Broderick was not very comfortable talking right to camera. Yeah. Have you ever had to talk right to a film camera? Sure. It's always weird and awkward. Like I'm doing it now as we're mm-hmm. recording because I'm used to doing it and I'm in control right. of the camera. Yeah. When it's when it's someone else who's behind the camera and there's a bunch of people around, it was always an issue for me when I was doing that kind of stuff. Well, and and the thing too with a film camera, that's not true of our cameras, I think. Well, I don't know about yours, but certainly not true of mine, is that depending on the lighting, you could be staring right into your own reflection. Yeah, no, I don't see that. Yeah. So, and yeah. that and that's a weird thing to be talking to yourself. Yes, it is. You know. Even though we do it all the time, don't we? Don't you look in the mirror and talk to yourself every once in a while? I do not. Wow. I never. I don't talk to myself out loud. Ever. Oh, interesting. 
I have a constant mo- internal monologue going yes, through I'm my sure. head. Yes, yes, <laughs> but I don't, it never comes out of my mouth. Oh no, I'll tell you something uh, real quick. I, I, you know, and feel free to cut this out. But like, I've been uh, working out for the last four weeks now, consistently three or four times a week. That's awesome. It's, yeah, it's been a really interesting change. Uh, I'm doing the Bowflex, lifting the weights, and it's the first time in like six years. You know, since the end of that shitty ass relationship I was in, that kind of fucked me up so bad. Because that's when I stopped kind of working mm-hmm. out consistently was in that terrible relationship. I just stopped caring about myself and got comfortable. And I've been trying to get, I didn't, and I just recently got a Bowflex thing, which I'm, you know, I used my credit to buy and I'll be paying off over a year. But like, I've been working out on it and I, and I, and I do talk to myself, right? And there was this moment in a recent workout, a couple of workouts ago where I was talking to myself and I was scared the neighbors were going to walk by, but I was just talking to myself going, you betrayed me. You try to keep me here. I'm not going to be here anymore. You're not going to stop me. And I was just talking to my body. And it's my way. Like, I've done that before. Like, I talk to myself out loud in certain situations, certainly before Schmodown matches. Oh, my God. When I was when I was needing to really get into the right frame of mind to take on some really great, I would just kind of talk to myself all the time. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Enough. Let's go. You know, so it's just that I have that instinct to do it. So I marvel, I marvel at the fact that you've never done that to yourself. That's awesome. I don't know if it's, no, I don't know if it's good or bad. Cause like I said, it's not that I'm not talking to myself. I'm just right. not saying it out loud. Yeah. I just um, feel like I have to, to kind of get the, you know, wake it up or whatever. But we all, well, it's so funny that, that, that Ferris Bueller line of, I thought my family was the only one that had weirdness <laughs> in it. Like we're yeah. all weird, you we're know, weird, like we're, yeah. we're all weird. Well, for me, it's about, I want to get back on camera. I want to get back right. hosting stuff and I want to get back acting. So I'm set. Do you want to get back acting? Yeah. I've set June as a target date to be in the shape that I feel the most comfortable in again and to start doing headshots and send stuff out and see, see what can happen. So I'm just opening the door to it as a new goal for myself in 2023 but seeing, you know, Lindley's been such an inspiration. She's lost 20 pounds oh, in wow. working out over the last four months. And, you know, for women, That's especially over 40, it's tough to lose the weight. She's been well, very she's not a big person. No, no, she's not. But she had put on, you know, some pounds. So her and the keto diet and the working out, because she'd been on the keto diet for a year now. She's been on it for a year. Mm-hmm. And she's like rigid. She has not messed with her ketosis at all. She's incredible with her willpower. Wow. And when she started, you know, factoring, started doing the working out over the last four to five months, the 20 pounds uh, have come off her and she looks fantastic and she feels good. And I think that's been a good motivation for me to kind of know them in a safe space, you know, to do that with her. And she's been very supportive. So, you know, that's awesome, dude. Yeah, I know. I'm very lucky. Yeah. Dude. Uh, I'm thrilled that you're thinking about acting again. Cause I've always thought you were a great actor. So <sighs> I appreciate that, man. It's just time to try. I feel like I've been in a, I've through a lot of shit and I'm like, okay, I can bring more to stuff now, you know? So that's we'll awesome. See. That's really great. Cameron has never been in love. At least nobody's ever been in love with him. If things don't change for him, he's gonna marry the first girl he lays. And she's gonna treat him like shit. Because she will have given him what he has built up in his mind as the end-all be-all of human existence. She won't respect him. Because you can't respect somebody who kisses your ass. That's so ironic that Ferris Bueller is saying that. Right? Isn't that there's a, such an ir- irony here? You can't respect somebody who kisses your own ass, kisses your ass the whole time. That's the thing. It's so ironic considering how many people kiss Ferris Bueller's ass, and that gives you a window into how much he actually respects them. To be honest with you, uh, but this 
pop psychology. And again, this is like Gilmore Girls where they're all talking or she's talking way beyond her years of knowledge about stuff. And so you get that here with Ferris. And this is clearly John Hughes talking, right? And this is clearly Mm. John Hughes, maybe even in a way, talking to people who are out there or maybe talking to a friend of his that he knew in high school who was in this situation. And we've all, we all know that guy who, you know, the first person who actually shows them attention, they're like just completely devoted to them, even though they may mistreat them and they may treat them badly. And you watch them treat them badly. And you're like, if only you could just get out of this or she could get out of this, um, they'd be happier. But, you know, because they had such little attention from anybody, any attention they did get becomes so much more magnified. Uh, And certainly when I was going through my periods of time when I, you know, was not good at picking up women, uh, which was in my 20s and early 30s, uh, anybody showed me attention. I was just like, oh, my God, yes, please. And I tried to make everything work, even if it was toxic or not right. So I know what that experience is like. So what Ferris is talking about, he's not wrong, but but a high school senior should not be trying to give you that kind of advice without knowing what life is really actually like outside of his bubble of being taken care of by his parents and everybody in the community. Ferris, we better try something else. This isn't working. And we cut to Ferris and Sloan in a hot tub <laughs> and Cameron sitting on a chair on the diving board. Um, and I love Sloan in this moment. She says, Cameron, I could flip out real easy too. It's okay. Sooner or later, everybody goes to the zoo. Yeah. I love that line. Sooner or later, everybody goes to the zoo. She's much more understanding. Yeah. And Ferris is much more judgmental of the stuff. Well, the problem with arrogance is it doesn't (laughs) lead to sensitivity and kindness. True. Very true. Very true. You know, and I I really think, I really think me kind of getting the shit kicked out of me in various ways, film school, post-film school, career-wise, yeah, wasn't fun, but it made me a kinder person, hmm. you know? And it, and it made me a better writer. That was the big thing, is that my writing, instead of me writing like, this is how everybody should behave, and this is the, you know, it was very rigid and, you know, came from an arrogant place, hmm. as opposed to a, a kinder, more human place. I became a more human writer. There's an alternative timeline where I didn't go to therapy and you didn't have those experiences, where the cinephiles is a completely different podcast. I don't know that it exists. I well, mean, I think it does, but it's us just kind of judging everybody the whole time for three hours. Yeah. I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. So I don't know what Scorsese was thinking, but this I wouldn't have done wrong. that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, and this is, you know, but, but of course, in this scenario, I'm a very famous director. So I well, don't know that I have time. Yes, I don't have time, John, to do this little penny any. What's a podcast, dude? Yeah. What's a podcast? Dude? Come on. What? As Derek Sloan and Ferris are talking, we watch Cameron slowly tilt forward and flip into the water. And then he's underwater, which, A, I can't not think about the graduate when I see someone yes, underwater like absolutely. this. Absolutely. Absolutely. But then also, if you watch Alan Ruck, do you know to, do you know that he's faking it at this moment? No. It isn't until the smile comes across his face. I think there's a there is a very interesting look where he looks up towards the surface. Oh. Where I kind of go, oh, maybe it's right there. But yeah. at this moment, Ferris starts to panic and he dives in. And drags him up and go, and Cameron is like comatose. Oh shit, Cameron, come on, Cameron! He's legitimately scared. For the first time in the whole movie. Yep. Which I think 
I, and this is where I go, of course, Ferris Bueller does care about Cameron. Yeah. Of course he does. Um, and his eyes flicker open, <laughs> and then the smile comes on Cameron's face, and he says, Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. Now, Steve. Yes. Do you remember the story that this is connected to in our own lives? Uh, no. Or at least I think I've, it sounds familiar, but no, tell me. The first time I rolled at mm. your house oh the next as we were doing you know rolling all night i took an extra dose and i was in control but in my warped mind at the time and this is pre-therapy i wanted to fuck with michael vogel because he had been scared that i was now i remember this moment yes yes that something's gonna happen to me so i played like i went a little comatose and fell off a chair and Michael was freaking out and slapping my face a little bit, trying to get me to kind of come to. And I looked at him and I go, Michael Vogel, you're my hero. And he lost it. Mike Ross lost it. <laughs> and so now, you know, not the smartest thing to do in retrospect, of course, because people are always afraid when people are trying drugs for the first time, what can happen? So, but at the moment, it just thought, I thought it was a funny thing to do, but I remember as I said at the beginning of this, when we start talking about this movie, this movie is so eminently quotable and still a quote, still use quotes all the time. I, I think time, how long you you decide to stick to the gag <laughs> makes a big difference. It does, it does. In my memory of that moment, that went on a long time before the You're My Hero <laughs> to the point where there was a lot of genuine fear and concern, you know? <laughs> Well, I would, my attorney would say, uh, you were all altered. So Absolutely. it doesn't hold up in court with your perceptions of how long the time was. Fair. But yeah. <laughs> Cut to the police. Yes. We're at the police station. There's Jeannie sitting on the couch and sitting across from her is Charlie Sheen in a fucking star making performance. Dude. Yeah. hundred percent. And by the way, this is platoon comes out the same year as yeah. this. Yeah. And he said, you know, he's the leather, the makeup is great. And I mean, every, every moment with Charlie Sheen is brilliant. Drugs? Thank you. No, I'm straight. I meant, are you in here for drugs? Why are you here? Drugs. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's hard for me. Just, I can't, I don't know if I have comments on this and I just want to play the whole scene. It's a confident, yeah, you should just play the whole scene. It's it's a confident, strong performance from Charlie. And it's such a out-of-nowhere interaction. Yeah. But when you're in high school, you have these kind of weird, ah, oh, shit. When you're in life, you have these kind of weird interactions sometimes at certain moments. And certainly here in this moment with him, the way, uh, you're so right to point out the makeup on him, right? He looks washed well, out and yeah bleached out in a way yeah and he's got the kind of haircut and he's got the look and he's the way he's he's wearing the leather jacket he's falling back into his more gravelly aspects of his voice um and this is you're right as you said these are the moments where you realize charlie sheen is a damn good actor no matter what you say oh, yeah. he's a damn good actor in this moment he brings this moment to life uh both him and jennifer gray you know it's great oh, yeah. to watch this scene yeah i don't know why i'm here why don't you go home? Why don't you put your thumb up your butt? And I love that Charlie Sheen kind of flicks his thumb up. 
<laughs> that's the, and I don't know if that came from John Hughes or came from Charlie Sheen, yeah. but it's fucking great. It's great that he's considering it. <laughs> you don't want to talk about your problem? With you, are you serious? I'm serious. Blow yourself. And then he kind of considers it, you know, like you can see the beat work where he goes, could I? <laughs> um, All right. You want to know what's wrong? I know what's wrong. I just want to hear you say it. <laughs> Why is this cracking me up so much, John? <laughs> because it's a great moment. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I just think the way Charlie delivers everything is so good because it, it does rattle Jeannie a little bit. And clearly she doesn't have many friends. If she's going to say this to uh, some stranger like this, if she's going to open up like this, it's because she doesn't have many friends to open up to. You know, There's no one in the film that comes up to her and goes, Jeannie, what's wrong today? And they have a they come up with a plan to go after Ferris. She's on her own on this. You know? Well, and it's what what feels at first like here's this idiot dr- guy on yeah, drugs who right. thinks he's wise actually ends up no he is kind of wise yeah yeah in a nutshell i hate my brother how's that that's cool did you blow him away or something <laughs> i think him saying you blow him away or anything is the moment that he he starts to win her over yeah, yeah. you know yeah what do you care if your brother ditches school why should he get to ditch when everybody else has to go you could ditch yeah, I'd get caught. And he says, and again, this is where you go, oh, this guy does have some wisdom. Because he says... So you're pissed off because he ditches and doesn't get caught, is that it? Basically. Basically. And your problem is you. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> you ought to spend a little more time dealing with yourself. A little less time worrying about what your brother does. Yeah. He's right. It's a basic rule of psychology, isn't it? Yeah. Compare and despair. If you compare your life with someone else's and you're inevitably going to compare your life with a person who's much more successful or much more accomplished or much more loved or whatever, you're going to despair because you're not that person. And that that there lies the way to madness. And so what he's saying is absolutely correct. Foundational rule of psychology. There are so many studies that talk about how what we really care about is how we compare to other people, not mm-hmm. what we actually have. Like if you... Like there are people who would who would rather have a job where they make more money than the other person than yeah. a job where they make more money total, but someone else makes more than them. You know, I don't oh. I didn't say that very well, but like you say, okay, you could do this job and you can make eighty thousand dollars, but this incompetent jerk makes a hundred grand, <laughs> or you could have a job where you make sixty grand and the incompetent jerk makes forty. Which job do you want? And people want they don't like that incompetent jerk making more money than them. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, that's what's so upsetting. Somebody you should talk to. If you say Ferris Bueller, you lose a testicle. Oh, you know him. (laughs) And she makes, you know, cracks her knuckles with her fist. The close-up is great, yeah. It's fantastic. Okay, we have reached the time when Ferris Bueller turns to tragedy. (laughs) Okay. This sequence is so painful to me. And it's painful to me every time I watch it. Really? And, and it's great. It's a great, great sequence. But I have come to love that car as much as Ferris does. Oh. Okay. And this hurts me <laughs> to watch. <laughs> the car is up on the jack in a very, very rickety manner. There's a brick 
on the gas pedal as it's spinning its wheel in reverse. And right from the beginning, you're like, don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> this is a bad idea. Oh, shit. By the way, as they shot this, they started at the end of summer. And by the time they're shooting this scene, we had reached the fall. You know what happens to trees in Chicago around the fall? They start to leave, leave leaves on the ground. Yeah, and those leaves start to turn brown. So there was the whole art department painting leaves green and sticking them back on the trees oh, wow. for this scene in the background. Oh, my God. Because it's supposed to be the same day as when they took the car in the morning. Yeah. And they, they're talking about what happened when Cameron was out of it. You know, that whole time I was just thinking things over. I realized it was ridiculous. <laughs> Being afraid. Worrying about everything. Wishing I was dead. All that shit. I'm tired of it. I think this movie does a beautiful turn into a more serious moment. Yes. Yes. Because, because this is totally sincere, I think. I mean, like, yeah. I, mean, I don't just mean sincere. I mean, like, heartfelt and real feeling yep. for me. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. It's the best day of my life. And that's when Sloan, which you brought up earlier, says, Cameron, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Did you see me change out of my clothes by the jacuzzi? And Alan Ruck's reaction and smile is so great. Yeah. <clears throat> and this is, uh, at least for me, there were naked hot tub parties when I was in high school. Oh, hello. Okay. And, or, yeah, I mean, maybe they started a little bit more in college, okay. but they, they exist, particularly with this group of friends. The group of friends that I described before were, I didn't necessarily have a girlfriend. Yeah. And, like, this is high school to me. This is high school. Like I, I her, his reaction and her reaction to it. I thought you were catatonic. That's okay. I'm not embarrassed. Do you think she's really not embarrassed? Yeah, I think she's me not. too. Yeah, I think uh, there's a self possession of of her that she has as a character, and I'm sure she had as an energy as a person uh, when she was auditioning for the role. That comes through in this line. Yeah. Well, and there's an intimacy in these kinds of mm -hmm. friendships. Yeah. That true. makes it okay. We're all going through this crazy crap together because high school's crazy. Right. You know, and you're all going through it together. The miles aren't coming off, going in reverse. Well, I thought that might be a problem. Just have to crack open the odometer, roll it back by hand. Do you think Ferris has any business cracking open the odometer of a Ferrari? <laughs> Where is he going to find a odometer to or a, a covering to put it back on at this time? No, he, I, he's screwed. Yeah. yeah. No, forget it. I got to take a stand. How do you feel about this turn for Alan Rock and for Cameron? Oh, I love it. It's great. And this is where you see how a 29-year-old can bring, yes. you know, this kind of um, complexity and nuance to this moment that make you feel it in a way that a regular high school kid probably couldn't. And you just need that for this moment. Yeah. Um, Cause he's taking a stand, you know, yeah. and he's, he's for, for the first time in the whole film, he's taking a stand. And it's ironic cause it's exactly what Ferris has been kind of wanting him to do. Yes. And here he is finally doing it um, to stop Ferris from trying to get out of ironically Ferris wanting to take responsibility for the, for something. Um, here is Cameron telling him who had probably said, Many, many times that he'll just because he said that by the parade, right? He'll just always get away with it or he'll just always right. succeed and no one's ever going to come after him. And here he is wanting to take responsibility, Ferris is, but Cameron stops him. Well, and and Alan Ruck, who showed amazing comedy chops yeah. throughout the whole film, now delivers this moment. I put up with everything. My old man pushes me around. 
and then hitting himself says, I never say anything. I can remember not just in high school, but mm. being with my friend who's having this moment. This is their version of this moment, you know? Well, he's not the problem. I'm the problem. And he leans a little bit on the car. <laughs> it's just, and it's so, it's what's so amazing is you're having this emotional, heartfelt scene. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the wheels keep spinning on the fucking Ferrari. <laughs> uh, he says, I'm not going to, uh, this is a great line, by the way. I am not going to sit on my ass. As the events that affect me unfold to determine the course of my life, I'm going to take a stand. I I, I love it. It's just everything Cameron's going through. I just, just such a cathartic moment. Yeah. Then he backs up, he looks at the car, and he kicks it. We see it shift on that jack a little bit. And then he loses it. Who do you love? Who do you love? You love a car. And he dents it damages it and he keeps tilting back farther and farther and then and again i think this is brilliant on the part of john hughes he goes for one more big kick <laughs> and just before he stops himself and we go oh thank god <laughs> or at least i do and he looks and then he reacts to the dent he created in the true thing his father loves dented the shit out of it <laughs> and i think there's like a relief in this because he says, Good. My father will come home. He'll see what I did. I can't hide this. He'll come home. He'll see what I did. He'll have to deal with me. I can't imagine the dysfunction and distance where you have to do this for your father to have to deal with you. Yeah, to pay attention, to listen to you, right? Yeah. I mean, he feels he has to go to this level to get any kind of interaction or reaction from his dad to make him really see what he's done to that house. Because I imagine the reason his mom is also kind of mean to Cameron or not around because it's a loveless marriage. And so yeah. she, he symbolizes what she has created with her husband and she kind of quietly hates it probably, you know, and it's yeah. all stemming from his treatment of them. And he, and he says, I think with this weird lightness at this moment, I don't care. I really don't. I'm just tired of being afraid. And just as we're like, Oh, this is going to be Okay. <laughs> He puts his foot on the car. I can't wait to see the look on the bastard's face. It drops down. The wheels hit. It spins in reverse. The shot of it pulling away from Cameron, Sloan, and Ferris is amazing. And then it crashes through that window. Yeah. So several things about this. First of all, they had to replace all the windows in this beautiful piece of architecture because it's, it's you know, the building's a couple of decades old. Yeah. So all the windows were slightly tinted. And they needed it to be clearer. Oh. And they need and if they put a new window on there, which they could break, it wouldn't match the other windows. So they had to replace every window in the building. Wow. So they would all match the one he broke. This is also a protected nature ravine area. Oh. So they couldn't damage any of the plants. Right. So they had to spread out tarps and, and then put dirt and plants on top of the tarps for the car to land on. But the car overshot the spot it was supposed to land. <laughs> and also bear in mind that this is a fiberglass model kit of a Ferrari. It's not a real Ferrari. Right. So when it hit the ground, it cracked. And so there are big cracks in the fiberglass, which obviously a, a metal car is not going to crack. Right. And so then they had to tastefully arrange branches of trees to cover up all the cracks in the, in the fake Ferrari. Just for that one shot down. Just for that one shot down. 
Um, filmmaking, ladies and gentlemen, filmmaking, right? And 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 I also have to say, I this might be the most upset I am about the destruction of an in, inanimate object in all of film history. <laughs> I maybe wow, maybe Rosebud weird. going into the furnace. I don't know, <laughs> but this is like I I loved this Ferrari so much in high school that seeing it destroyed crushed me. Wow. Yeah. It's so funny too. Like I totally looked at magazines that had Lamborghinis in them and stuff like, and, and really? thought about our guy, huh? Okay. Not at all. Now, like I think oh, somewhere right. in like 22, like I just went, why am I looking at these things <laughs> and completely lost interest in it? Mm-hmm. But yeah, in high school, I was all about, you know, cool cars. Yeah. what I do? You killed the car. <laughs> and they looked down at the car and I like this moment. Cameron, it's my fault. I'll take the heat for it. We'll wait for your father to come home, and when he gets here, I'll tell him that I did it. He hates me anyway. Is Ferris really willing to do that? Yeah. I think he is in the moment, and I think 10 minutes later, he'll change his mind. But I think in the moment, yeah, I, he I legitimately agree is trying to, to do that. I'll take it. No, I'll take it. No, no, you don't want this much heat. I want it. If I didn't want it, I wouldn't have let you take the car out this morning. Do you think it's true that if Cameron didn't, that that really Cameron deep down wanted a conflict with his father and that is why he let Ferris take the Ferrari out? I think there is a very strong element of truth to that. Yeah. Because he's a kid and as a kid, as a teenager, you're not really healthy with your emotions. A majority of teenagers are not because you're still processing them. So how to confront his father, maybe he didn't know or had tried other avenues and didn't want to pull, go the nuclear route. Mm-hmm. And here's the nuclear route with the car. Now, did right. he think he was going to toss the car into no. the ravine? Oh, of no. Course not. But now that it's happened, there's no way out. He now has to have the conversation. He could have maybe explained the dents or whatever, or, or him taking it for a joyride or whatever. But him destroying it, that's a whole different conversation than him damaging it. No, I want it. I'm going to take it. That's it. When Morris comes home, he and I will just have a little chat. His little smile when he says Morris, yeah. like almost like, oh, wow, well, it's newfound power. Yeah. It's nice. And there's just a great push in on Cameron in this last moment. Yeah. And I think film-wise, you really feel that it is going to be good, don't you? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question. I don't think it's going to be good at all. I no. think filmically, you, I feel good. Right. But in actually imagining what the fuck dad's going to do when he comes home, yeah, it's not going to be good. Uh, watching it this time around, as they slowly pan to his face, because Hughes pans for a little bit of time. It's like three, four seconds as a slow pan into his face. I almost wanted to put like a little voiceover. And that's the last we ever saw of Cameron. <laughs> the last Ferris Bueller ever saw of Cameron. You know, something like that. Because he just has this kind of weird smile on his face. And he holds it for quite some time, Hughes does. And I thought it would be funny to do a voiceover or some kind of a graphic that comes up. You know? I mean, I, I don't just think about, dad's going to be happy about it at all. I don't know if your dad had prized possessions. My dad had a massive stamp collection that oh, he worked wow. on literally every, every night, not every single night, but any night he was home and didn't have a thing to do. Yeah. He was working on that stamp collection. It filled up a giant closet in my house. I can't imagine if I had like took a match to it. Yeah to decades of work. My dad started that stamp collection when he was 11 years old. I can't imagine what his reaction right. would be. Um, cut to the police station. 
And mom, the the whole narrative here is that Jeannie made a phony call. Yeah. And it's like, you got a knocked out dog. There, there, there had to be like blood and dirt and mud in the kitchen. Yep. It was not a phony call. And the fact that nobody believes Jeannie is pretty awful. Yeah. And, and I love the moment too, as she's talking to the police, you know, detective, whatever he says. Oh, by the way, I hope your son is feeling better. Tell them all the guys down here are pulling for him. <laughs> and while this conversation is going on in the background, through the window, we yeah. see Jeannie making out with Charlie Sheen. <laughs> so I think that Jennifer Grey has been absolutely fantastic through this whole movie. Yeah. But I think it is this scene that makes her a star and gets her dirty dancing. A hundred percent. Yeah. She is so unbelievably adorable. Yeah. In her giggles and her just, just a totally different person. Yeah. Uh, let's not ruin this talk, all right? I mean, yeah. He he understands her. And he kind of saw through her bullshit and called her out on it, which most people kind of like. <laughs> and so, oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I think this is what allows her to be this vulnerable and playful and goofy with him. Well, uh, not, are they going to end up together? I, I don't think so. But- it's a nice moment, and she needed it after such a stressful day. Well, and what has Jeannie really needed? Jeannie's really needed love, you know? Yeah, right. Like, that's what this is all about, yeah, is yeah. that why does Ferris get – it's not that Ferris got to quit school. It's that everybody loves Ferris. Right. You know? And, and maybe she says to her parents, kind of paid her off with the car. Like, here, see, mm. we, we wouldn't have gotten you a car if we didn't love you. Here's the car. Take the car. You know, and maybe that she knows kind of in a subconscious level that that's not the love that she was looking for. You know? Yes, I think that is a great, great point. You didn't tell me your name. Oh, well, it's it's Jean, but uh, a lot of a lot of guys call me Shauna. You hear that? Okay, Jean. And she's giggling, and the way she kind of steps down the stairs, just laughing, and keeps looking back at him. It is so cute. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, Steve yes. Morris' question. Do you think she has any friends that call her Shauna? No. Yes, I agree. She does not. That was no, all. That's just, just a thing in her head. Probably a line she's used before. Yeah. Yeah. And what song is she singing as she's leaving? Donkashane. Little Donkashane. Of course, means thank you. Yeah. It does. Yeah. We're with Ferris and Sloan saying goodbye. Music is Dream Academy, which has had some other songs in here. Yeah, John Hughes. He looks at his watch, and says, "Oh shit, I gotta go," and he runs off. And jumps over a gate, and she says, just as he's gone, he's going to marry me. It's a weird moment, isn't it? I feel like he didn't quite hit the landing on this relationship at the end. Because it's such a quick goodbye. And I don't think, well, I don't think he's going to marry her. I think she's just not. That's what know. I'm saying. And so yeah. you've made her so self-possessed. You've given her such strength throughout the movie. Uh, and she's, she, you know, she's played with all the um, scenarios here. And she's really been the person who's kind of. Uh, I don't know, kind of observing, but also not needing to be uh, involved in the situation. It's, it's, she's played just a very strong character throughout. So to give this moment where he takes off and she says, oh, he's going to marry me. I thought, I didn't like that. I, I think there's something else they could have done with that to give her a little more self-possession. Like even just to kind of, huh, and then just walked off or, or something like that. I just didn't know that he's going to marry me. Because there's been no real kind of, emotional exchanges between them other than in the stock exchange. And that whole thing was about him wanting to marry her and her going, sure, but not right now. Her, she puts the kibosh on it 
then. So I thought it was an odd thing at the end to have that as their end. You know what I really wonder is to is what would happen if you asked everyone like of us our age yeah, yeah. in high school when you saw this movie what you thought. Oh because yeah. I didn't care twice about it. I was like, great, cool, because I loved Ferris as a character. Yeah. Right. And I because I think it's our being old guys now looking at Ferris and being maybe a little bit more critical of him mm. that make you go, oh come on, you know, right. he's not he's not going to marry her and this relate, you know, this relationship right. is a high school relationship. That's but true. you do, but you do think those things in high school, you know? Oh, sure. I just mean like, but I just would, I would have liked a little bit more of an exchange between both of them, just totally. something more in the back and forth. And what a great day. Do you know what I'm saying? Cause we had spent so much time focusing on Cameron throughout the day and Cameron's relationship with Ferris. What's her relationship with him? We only get one scene where that's really kind of explored. And so I would have liked a, a kind of a button scene to their relationship that had a little more weight to it before he took off. Totally. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, honestly, the real important relationship is Ferris and Cameron, yeah, not you're right. Ferris you, and Sloan. I, I totally get that. Yeah, no, but I agree with your point that it could there's something here that could have been a little better. There was enough groundwork there to, to warrant the scene, if you yeah. wanted to put it in. Yeah. Yeah. Jeannie is driving and getting scolded by her mother when Ferris runs right in front of the car. <laughs> Mom doesn't see him, but Jeannie and he make eye contact and they kind of squint at each other. Yeah, yeah. What happened in that moment? That's old school classical gunslinger. That's exactly what Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach look like at the end of uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Well, is that except moment? I think she smiles a little bit. Yeah, because she's like, oh, I'm going to get your ass. And I, I don't. she's trying to trick him. I don't know. I think if she, I think she is, this is how she's starting to protect him. Because if she wanted to trick him, she'd just go, mom, Ferris is right here. He obviously quit school. Oh, no, no. I think she's trying to trick him that she's going to turn him in. Oh, that's totally possible. That's what I think, which is why the smile is, there's a confident smile there. And Ferris smiles back. Because yep. he's like, all right, game on, let's go. Uh, so, and it, it, you know, they both. And go then Ferris goes off and she floors the car, I think, to distract mom from seeing Ferris. Yes, of course, because the yeah. papers go flying. Yeah. And then the cops come after her and I should go, poor Jeannie. Like, she's actually making a heroic sacrifice here at this moment just because she kissed Charlie Sheen, really. Yeah. Um, and this whole, and then we go in the song, by the way, is The Swivel Heads by the English Beat. English beat was very big for yeah. me and my friends at that era. Yeah. Uh, I listened to these albums over and over again. And I love that this has now become kind of an action sequence. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And Ferris is running, you know, runs by the barbecue guy, <laughs> drives his drinks, runs up past some women with bikinis, goes out of frame, <laughs> comes back in and goes, hi, how you doing? Ferris great, Bueller. <laughs> great moment. It's great. It's also so obvious that their day got out of hand. And this is John Hughes says this because the sun is nowhere near. They're totally facing the wrong way for the sun. Say, they're not <laughs> sunbathing. They're shade bathing. Yeah. Jeannie runs another stop sign running from the cops. Jeannie is in deep shit. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a, the, the weakness, I would say, of this sequence is the old lady swerving in front of dad. I don't think that <laughs> that's actually so great. Um, and then, you know, again, we have another moment where dad driving looks over to the left, sees Ferris and then looks over and Ferris is gone. Yeah. <laughs> and then shakes his head like, what? Yeah. Uh, uh, was it him? No, it can't be him. Ferris runs right through this whole house and jumps off the deck at the end. Great. By the way, he hurt his knee. Matthew Broderick did during this sequence running through this house, which forced them to change and simplify the choreography in the parade sequence. Oh my God. Cause his knee was hurting. Damn. 
and he yells to the kids, dinner's ready, <laughs> runs up the slide on their little jungle gym, whatever. And this is just where we've gone to this level of awesome ridiculousness. He jumps off the top of the jungle gym onto the trampoline into slow motion up into this shot as genie is pulling into the house and ferris is still floating and dad pulls into the house and he's still floating and then he lands and gets to the back door and we go we've made it i mean it's such a climactic exciting ending to our comedy except he looks under the mat and we see the outline of a key and we hear looking for this when the foot comes down yeah and there is Rooney. And he and it's and it's classic framing where we're looking up at Rooney, Rooney. So he looks huge in the frame. We're looking down at Ferris. And for the first time, I think in the whole movie, Ferris looks genuinely scared. Yep. Yep. I have dreamed about this. This time, God damn you little bastard. I've got you right where I want you. And then Jeannie sees them out the window. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still in the moment of what's Jeannie going to do here? Yeah, which is great. Thank God you're all right. You know, we've been worried sick about you. Matthew Broderick's reaction to this moment is priceless. Yeah, it's really good. Thank you, Mr. Rooney, for driving him home. Now, I want you to go upstairs and get in bed. And turns to Rooney and says, Can you imagine someone as sick as Ferris trying to walk home from the hospital? Oh, kids. By the way, Miss Rooney, you left your wallet on the kitchen floor. Dun, dun. And she tosses the wallet just as the dog wakes up. Yeah. Uh, and I love, and again, this is the, the ridiculous comedy stuff, is that she smiles as we hear screams from off camera. Right. That apparently no one hears yeah. in their backyard. Ferris runs up to his room, takes his clothes off, gets rid of the mannequin, jumps in the bed, and we're like, good, we made it. And then he hears the snore. And we hear the footsteps of his parents coming towards, and we're going right to this climactic moment. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out the foul ball he caught at Wrigley Field. I mean, that's just brilliant. Yeah, good lighting. And the door is just starting to open as he throws the ball, hits the thing perfectly, the snoring stops, and they walk in, and he's done it. Yeah. And we're back to really the beginning of the movie and him playing sick. Please don't make me stay home again. I want to go to school. I have to graduate in June and and I, I want... Ferris, you're sick. And don't go pushing it and making yourself worse. And here's just, and, and you'll like this from the acting perspective, just a little bit of how in the scene Matthew Broderick is. is what's mm -hmm. supposed to happen in this moment is that mom is supposed to lean in and kiss him and lift up the blanket and tuck him in. Mm. But mom, the actress, forgot to move the blanket. And oh. so that is why Matthew Broderick says, Blanky? Oh. And then she comes back and moves it. And that's just an actor being in it. You know what I yeah. mean? Smart. You know, they say, get well, and they both leave him. And the door closes, and he takes a breath, and then he turns to camera and says, I said it before, and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. And we think that's the end of the movie. Yeah, no. And the music that is playing as we move into the credits, of course, is Oh Yeah by Yeller. Oh Yeah. And the credits start to roll. And then on half the screen, you see Rooney limping down the street. This sequence 
used to come before the last scene of oh. Ferris. Yeah, it was just part sense. of the movie. Right. And they pulled it out and put it on the credits. And I think it plays so well. Yeah, kids, before Marvel, we had post-credit yeah. scenes. Just to let you all know, there were, Marvel didn't invent post-credit scenes, just to be clear. We watched the school bus pull up. And I love, like, the driver's like, do you want to ride? And you could see the debate on Jeffrey Jones's face of... I really don't want to walk five miles home in my condition. I really don't want to get on this bus. I love how she he waves her off at first, and then she yeah. offers the ride, and then he has that back and forth. It's so great. It gets on the bus, and everything about the walk down the aisle, all the students, which are all real high school kids looking at him. Oh, great. The one seat, yeah, the one seat next to the girl with glasses that apparently were so thick that she got nauseous and almost threw up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right, because they didn't make him prescription, of course. Well, and it's not her prescription. Yeah. Yeah. And then he sits down, and I can remember being in the theater when she says, Gummy bear? It's been in my pocket. They're real warm and soft. I think gummy bears were kind of new at this point in, like, 1986. I don't know when they first came to the U.S. She hands him one, and I love that he looks at it and just tosses it. (laughs) And the last thing he sees is he looks across the aisle and on the binder of the kid sitting there, it says, save Ferris. And he does the fir- the only fourth wall break of the yeah. movie that he does right into the camera as it goes, as it goes back to the credits full screen, which I think is brilliant. Once again, like you said earlier, Jeffrey Jones, you know, it's a shame. All yeah. the stuff that happened is terrible what he did. But when you watch this movie in a vacuum, his performance is incredible. And that the facial comedic acting he is doing in this sequence with those two kids is great. Just great. And the look he gives you at the end. Perfect. And again, we go to black and we think that's the end of the movie. And then all of a sudden we're back with Ferris who looks down at the camera and says, You're still here? It's over. Go home. And he walks away and turns back and goes, go. <laughs> and that is the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So cool, man. So cool. It's great. By the way, lots of stuff they had to figure out in post. First cut was two hours and 45 minutes. Right. So that's an hour longer. So I'm sure that has the whole Charlie Sheen's family sequence in it. And, you know, the museum scene in the wrong place. And, and this is the way it is in comedy. Comedy is so much about rhythm and pace and yeah. setups and things like that. When they finally got the cut down, it was obviously a huge hit. Tenth highest grossing film of 1986. On a $5 million budget, it made $70 million. Wow. There was lots of talk of a sequel, which never happened, unless we get this one that you mentioned of these two guys. <laughs> yeah, which is weird. And there was also a little-remembered TV show of oh. Ferris Bueller, except yeah. for the fact that Jeannie was played by a very young Jennifer Aniston. Yes, yes. And I think Charlie Schlatter played, mm. I think he played uh, Ferris Bueller in, in that one, but I don't remember. I totally remember watching it. Yeah. Because yeah, I was yeah. so excited when it came out. Yeah. But even I knew it wasn't good. We didn't, but we, we, we were still young. We, we, thought yeah. the, we thought these people understood what they were doing. And if you're <laughs> going to make a televised version of the movie, they would have to bring the same kind of quality to it. And we were wrong. No, there were so many shows like that. Like I remember, um, there was an Animal House TV show. Oh God, yeah, that was horrible. There was nice. there was a lot of shows that were sort of trying to recapture some movie, and they almost never yeah. worked. Can I give you a little bit of trivia before we end? 
No, I don't think the cinephiles is really a place where people want to find out bits of trivia. Yes, what is it? So the bus driver, Dee Dee Rescher, is a well-respected voiceover artist, still hmm. working today. Occasionally does on-camera stuff, but has been in numerous, numerous projects uh, since Ferris Bueller's Day Off, both on camera and behind the mic. She is the daughter of Gane Rescher, who is the cinematographer of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Whoa. So just kind of, you know, connecting the tissues here. I know you and Scott do Enterprise Incidents. You and I talked Rathacon with Scott on the show, um, on this show. So I thought that'd be a nice little kind of yeah. in there. No, dude, that's voice is so distinct, you know. Do you have final thoughts on Ferris yes. Bueller's Day Off? This is a masterpiece of 1980s cinema. That's what I'll say. And I know some of you snobs will be like, masterpiece? When you dive in deep with a movie like this, there are a lot of messages that are coming out of this film. He is talking to teenagers. He is talking to adults who have who were once teenagers. He is trying to you know help you to understand that we're so caught up in greed and money and going after things in the 1980s. The me, me, me generation is what we were called back then that we forget that there are human beings that were that are around. We forget to take a moment to appreciate what we have. If you don't stop and take a look around, uh, you could miss it. And that's what he was saying, in essence. It was John Hughes's message, I think, within the movie of like, there was a time when things were lighter. There was a time when we could enjoy the world. We could all come together, different colors, different races, different creeds, to enjoy something like they do in the parade. There's more going on in this movie than just a kid uh, taken off with his friends to have a fun day off in the city. There's more. And I appreciate that. And even now looking back on it, as I'm an older person in 2022, there's still so much joy to be taken from this film, from the comedy, but also from the message that the film is trying to get you to understand. And I have a feeling that John Hughes must have done some therapy um, to have to kind of lay this very deftly within the script to get people to understand it. And it must have been current considering how Steve told us in the first part, how little time he took to write this script and to have it come out the way it did. It's just an incredible piece of cinema that deserves much more respect than you might think when you first watch this movie. So I agree with all of that. Absolutely. I also think the first thing, and this quote has been attributed in a bunch of different places, mostly to the actor, Edmund Keene might be Edmund Gwen, might be Donald Crisp, the whole bunch of people. But the line, the quote is, dying is easy, comedy is hard. And just on that level, this is an unbelievably brilliant movie. Yeah. If you think of just how, and, and this is, you know, I, I know I've said this before of like, how many great ideas does it take to make a great movie? And people go like, oh, 10, 20? And it's like, no, thousands of great ideas, you know. Edie McClure putting pencils in her hair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, does the, is it mandatory for the movie to have that? No, but it's damn funny. And there's so many of those just moment to moment. So many funny ideas yeah. just on that level. Even if the movie had no depth to it, I think it's a great movie. Mm -hmm. The next thing is that the performances in particular of Jeffrey Jones, Alan Ruck and fucking Matthew Broderick are so great. And Edie McClure too, I'd say. They're so great and they add so much. You can see those actors contributing and John Hughes accepting those contributions and helping with it. That's there. And then I'm really fascinated by the two versions of this movie. One version is the movie that I saw in 1986 where I, as a high school kid, went, 
Ferris Bueller is a hero and a genius, and he's the greatest human ever and the coolest person ever, and I want to be like Ferris Bueller. And now 54-year-old Steve, who says, on some levels, all that's true, and on other levels, this is a privileged, rich, arrogant kid who maybe needs to have his comeuppance, you know, because I've known people like this. And like, and what's so funny is both of those movies can fully live in my head at the same time. And I still find it. Oh, and you know what? Maybe I should even add Jennifer Grey and Charlie Sheen to those great performances, by the way, because they're fantastic. And I can still enjoy it all the way through and still be absolutely thrilled when Ferris A jumps on that trampoline and B, when Jeannie comes and rescues him from Mr. Rooney. It's all great. So that's what we think of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe we'd love to hear what was your greatest day that you took off of school or off of work? What was your best day off? You can visit us on our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, a whole bunch of other places. And you can read, uh, leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts, please. Leave your comments on YouTube. You can also follow the show on uh center underscore files on twitter the center files podcast on instagram and you can buy or stream ferris bueller's day off along with every other movie we've ever done on cinephiles.net and you can support the show where you can even pick a movie we've made listen to our shorts i think we just picked our watch along for january so we're going to be doing that soon it's going to be a lot of fun on patreon.com slash the cinephiles and you can follow me at sr morris on twitter and enterprise incidents which john already mentioned where we have just recorded the first episode of Star Trek, the animated series. John, how would people find you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch. And yeah, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. Uh, you're trying to get to 50,000 subscribers by the end of the year. Help me do that. So many thousands of you listen to us every week. Head on over there for more movie talk with a bunch of people like the Geek Buddies and Jeff Snyder on the hot mic with Wendy Lee, Laura Kelly, all kinds of people who are there consistently almost every week having some fun conversations about the world of film. So head us uh, head over there to uh, youtube.com slash John says and my other podcast, The Top Ten, uh, The Hot Mic, um, and The Geek Buddies all out there for you to enjoy as well. So we got lots of content from our whole family of outlaws, cinephiles, <laughs> geek buddies, all of them. You should check all of it out and you should come back next week for another great film right here on The Cinephiles. Mm-hmm.